0: You can find it on the PropG pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: We talk a lot about instability in the Middle East, but one of the countries that usually doesn't come up in this conversation is Jordan. The Hashemite kingdom is typically seen as an island of stability in a turbulent region. But just this week— there was uh, a massive, massive shock to the system. The former crown prince, Hamza, uh, was detained at his home at the orders of the current king, Abdullah, who alleged that the crown prince was engaged in a coup attempt against the monarchy. Uh, This is wild stuff in any country— But especially in Jordan, which is not only a relatively stable regime, or so we thought, but also an important part of the broader Middle East regional security architecture and the American strategy to manage the Middle East broader conflicts. Today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, we're going to talk about Jordan in real depth. We're going to talk about what happened, whether or not this coup attempt was real, and what it means that there's uh, such a public round of discontent between the king and his half-brother. I'm Zach Beecham here, as always, with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hey.
2: I love talking about a uh, monarchy.
1: What?
3: It was an Amman, Jordan. Uh, it's an Amman, Jordan. Oh, uh, it, 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 it. It. It, it took me It took me. Amman it took, yeah. me Jordan. Right. Yeah. It, it yeah. was a stretch. It was a stretch.
2: Oh, it was terrible, but I, I went with it.
1: That's all I got, it was it, the spelling really threw me because, like, it's a m m a n in writing in English, and it's monarchy is mon.
3: Also, Alex is just not good at jokes, so that's what threw me.
1: <laughs> there, yeah. is that,
2: there is that, however, there is a Jordanian news site that is Amman, but m a m m o n, so it sort of works in a weird way, but it doesn't. So, we can just move on. <laughs>
1: Okay. Magical. (laughs) So, yeah, it it looks like Alex has jokes. Uh, Unfortunately, I have to call on him to talk about actual worldly stuff, Uh, so (laughs) hopefully there are no more Amon puns going on. Alex, uh, please tell us uh, what actually happened this week, because it's kind of a wild story. Well, just like my joke, there
2: was a failed attempt. So, uh, or allegedly. Very broad strokes, here's what happened. On Saturday, Prince Hamza, uh, who is the half-brother of King Abdullah of Jordan. Uh, They have the same father, the late King Hussein, different mothers, but they are half-brothers. And the half-brother, Hamza, was put under house arrest by the government of King Abdullah. The reason given by the government was that Hamza, working perhaps with foreign entities, was leading and plotting a coup attempt against his half-brother, the king. To be clear, we don't really have much evidence for this other than the government says this was happening. They point to Hamza having, uh, you know, some relations and some connections to politicians that are connected to Israel and Saudi Arabia and even the United Arab Emirates. But so far, no, like, actual clear evidence of, like, these guys were clearly talking, here's what they were doing, etc. It's just they were leading a coup. Hamza disputes this. He uh, released a video to the BBC in which he said, uh, nope, nah, that's not what happened. If anything, it's just that I have been an open critic of my brother, and uh, this is a way to stifle dissent. And so that led to a pretty high stakes, you know, he said, he said in the royal family, which I should note doesn't really happen in Jordan. Like we've seen, you know, royal families have massive disputes elsewhere in the world, but just not in Jordan. Including Almost all on
3: Oprah, it turns out.
2: There you go. Um, Anytime there's these kinds of disagreements within the royal family, they happen behind closed doors. They just don't happen out in the open like this and so dramatically to the point that they capture the world's attention. So that is the basis of what happened. Um, But that was not the end of the drama. What we also saw was You know, not only Hamza, but like roughly 17 to 20 other officials were arrested as part of this, uh, you know, detaining uh, effort because they were all allegedly part of the coup and involving, you know, other members of the royal family, a a former cabinet minister who has ties to Saudi Arabia, leaders of tribes that form the backbone of King Abdullah's political base, like some pretty major figures. And so this is not just, like, Hamza did a thing. This is, there is a wide conspiracy against the crown um, that I, King Abdullah, am trying to sub- subdue and, and to quash before anything gets worse. Then it went slightly quiet um, un- until the next day, Sunday. Um, <laughs> right, it was quiet for, like, half, for a hot second. Um, until Sunday, in which, um, you know, audio was released, it seems, by by Hamza's people, in which he's like, look, I'm not gonna stay quiet. I'm absolutely going to keep talking uh, about the what I think are the failures of my brother's policies. I'm going to continue to tweet. Like I will stay in the house. But by the way, house—it's a palace. Like calm down. But still, you know, he's he, he's he has to stay there. Um, it's like I'm not going to leave because I want this situation to be kind of chill and not the worst. Because if I leave, it's going to escalate. But I'm not going to stay quiet. The king basically sends his uncle to deal with Hamza. And then on Monday, we find out that there's a letter, that typed letter that Hamza signs. It's like, I, I back the king. Everything's great. I'm so sorry. We're all one happy family. And like, you know, probably coerced into saying that. It's also typed, so hard to believe he like hand wrote it. Maybe it was written for him. We don't know. Some people believe that. But either way, like this was the drama. And now King Abdullah is like, look, I am heartbroken. I am saddened. Uh, my brother did this, but like the sedition is done. We, we've we've kept this under wraps and now all of our problems, if we still have them, are going to be behind the scenes. Uh, so that is the wild, wild events of, of, of what happened um, in less than a week ago and that continue to Royal Jordan today. But that's just like what we know. There's a whole backstory um, that just, like, adds a whole layer of complexity to this.
3: Yeah, so it actually gets even more complicated, right? So after there's, like, this declaration that everything's okay, everything's under control, um, <laughs> then more audio leaks out to the media. And, again, probably from Hamza's people. I mean, because I'm not sure who else would have made this recording. And it's this secretly recorded exchange that essentially backs up Hamza's claim, Right. So Hamza's saying, you know, all along, he's like, look, this, you know, I wasn't involved in this sedition or anything like that. They just want me to shut up. They want me to stop tweeting because he has been fairly vocal on Twitter in recent years, criticizing not directly his brother, but criticizing the government and lamenting for his country and things like that. So Hamza's thing is like, look, they just want me to shut up. They want me to stop tweeting. So they came to my house and they told me that and, you know, put me under house arrest and I'm not going to do that. Um, And then, of course, the government, you know, the monarchy says, no, no, no. It was this whole plot of sedition, right? So then this audio leaks out and it's an exchange between the top general, like the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the Jordanian military in Hamza's house, literally like telling him he has to stay there with like the army, like Jeep outside and all these forces. And it's this really wild exchange because you hear like the general's like really calmly just kind of like you know being a general saying like we're not threatening you and so like it starts out he says i'm asking his royal har- hi- harness really
1: <laughs> his royal, royal harness. harness
3: royal harness we we love
1: that <laughs> Sophie, please I mean, keep that in the episode we got to keep militarys being a royal harness yeah seriously <laughs>
3: So the general says, I'm asking his royal highness, starting from today, to stop attending these events, stop meeting with these people. And he seems to be referring to meeting with tribal leaders and these other kind of high profile events that kind of undermine his half brother's authority when, you know, the former crown prince is out there meeting with, you know, really important, influential tribal leaders publicly and taking pictures. So he says, stick to family visits and that there be no tweets. And then... You could hear Hamza like asking for his men to bring the guys, the chief's car around. And he starts yelling at him and he's like, So you come to me telling me what to do and what not to do in my country? Are you, you're coming to threaten me? You're telling me not to go out and see the people? Are you threatening me? And like Hunedi, the general, just like, We are not threatening. And so he just keeps going. And Hamza's like, So the mismanagement of the country is my fault. The failure is my fault. And you tell me, You're the, the heads of the security service, you're threatening me don't leave your house, don't see anyone, don't tweet. And then he goes, get in your car and leave, sir. <laughs> and It's just like this really wild thing. And so like he keeps yelling and, uh, you know, the guy is, the, the general is kind of like really calmly trying to just be like, we're not threatening you, we're telling you not to tweet. And he's like, you're threatening me, like in my house, like the son of, you know, the house of Hussein, like how dare you speak to me in this manner. So to get it's like this very like imperious, it's an amazing exchange. And so that audio leaked out, right? And it seemed to pretty clearly back up Hamza's version of events. And then, oopsie, all of a sudden, the government issues this huge blanket, like, media gag order that nobody can talk publicly about what's going on all of a sudden because this audio leaked out. So while, yeah, they're saying that everything's fine, it seems like maybe things are not super settled yet behind the scenes totally. So
1: to to understand all of this drama, I think it's important to to look back at how you got the split between these two half-brothers in the first place. So prior to the current king, there was King Hussein. And King Hussein had married a number of times, and it seemed wanted to make Hamza, the the crown prince who's in so much trouble right now, into the next king. But instead— He chose Abdullah, who is the son of a different wife, so already creating a little bit of tension between these two men. The reason seemed to be that Abdullah was older and more prepared. Hamza was 18 at the time that this decision was being made. So he picks the older son, and then the older son immediately makes Hamza the crown prince. Not because he's, like, close friends with him. It seems—again, this is speculation that experts are making because a lot of the internal palace intrigue stuff in Jordan is— well, it's palace entry, right? It's kept inside the palace, and, and there's no independent media to speak of in the country. You just don't really have a good sense of what's going on. So it seems like he was doing this because he, being Abdullah, made Hamza the crown prince because his father, Hussein, basically made him. It's like, this is my dying wish, etc. you got to make your half-brother a crown prince. A few years later, Abdullah decides that he doesn't want Hamza, who he's not close to, doesn't like that much, et cetera, to be the crown prince, and names his own son to be the new crown prince. Taking the power away from Hamza. This makes Hamza very angry. Obviously, I would be pretty mad <laughs> too if the thing I'd been working for my entire life was taken away from me. And so he becomes an, an outspoken critic of Abdullah's rule. And like this is a problem for Abdullah in a number of different ways. First of all, it is very bad if you're in a monarchy when other elements of the monarchy are criticizing you. The family is supposed to be the united physical representation of the country. And so when they disagree amongst themselves, it threatens the, like foundational legitimacy of the political arrangement and the stability, internal stability of the regime. Second, Abdullah's regime had a lot of problems. Like, this isn't (laughs) some kind of government where everyone's really happy and doing well, etc. There's significant poverty in certain places. They have uh, a a large, there's a large amount of government corruption, which is a real focus of Hamza's critiques. And in general, it just, it highlighted the shortcomings of the government. And the third, is that Hamza is in some ways uh, a more popular figure than Abdullah, who is, again, according to the way that observers of Jordanian politics understand the internal political dynamics, Hamza is more popular, he's more charismatic, Abdullah is is much less uh, in touch with the way ordinary people in Jordan uh, see the monarchy, and people just don't like him as much. Part of this is that Hamza actually looks a little bit like Hussein, their father— who is very well-liked and still remembered fondly by many Jordanians. So the end result is that you have this pretty significant threat to Abdullah of his half-brother going around publicly criticizing him, and it seems like now he decided that this is going to stop and decided to use the army to do so, which is a pretty striking step, to put it mildly, wielding the military against, uh, against a member of one's own family.
2: I think we need to note that Jordan paints itself, and in some ways has the right to say that it is, you know, one of the more stable countries in a pretty volatile region. Um, and so, when we see something like this happen, it sort of shatters that perception. And that's why I think this this made the waves it did, not only because you know royal intrigue of any kind is is, is just fun. Um, let's be clear, despite the high stakes. But this sort of ruins the reputation of Jordan. And it shows that King Abdullah, who many in, in the West, including the United States, seem seem to love and revere, is perhaps more authoritarian than, you know, they'd been letting on. In fact, Freedom House, which is an, an imperfect measurement of, of a nation's freedom, but basically turned Jordan from, like, partly free to not free. So, and I, and I mention this because I think the, the political backstory here adds a bit to to both sides of the arguments, which, again, Abdullah is saying Hamza was leading a coup, or part of a coup plot, and Hamza is saying that, no, this is about stifling my speech against the government. So to make Abdullah's point, I guess, um, is that Hamza, what he's been doing for years, has been basically criticizing everything that, uh, not everything, but a lot of things that Abdullah's been doing, including a massive crackdown on teachers' unions, leading to thousands being imprisoned, to hiking taxes on, on workers' That led, you know, Hamza to basically say that there was mismanagement by the government and even eventually to tweet out in 2018, oh, my country, which is, you know, seems like a pretty big lament that especially when your brother's the one leading the nation. And he's been going around pretty publicly meeting with, you know, tribal leaders and other power brokers in the country, which, if you are the king, doesn't make you feel too good, right, when you see a lot of powerful folks sort of start siding openly um, with your brother, who does not pose necessarily like an open threat, but is seen internally as one to the crown. And on top of that, he's got some connections with with people who have foreign ties, but also like if you're in the royal family, you have foreign ties. I don't really buy that point, but that's at least part of this. So that's sort of, if if you're uh, Abdullah, so, you're- So
1: Alex, sorry to interrupt, but in the, um, in the last two comments, yours and mine, we've been sort of framing this as if it was a decision by Abdullah- to crack down on his brother. And that means implicitly we've been denying the official Jordanian narrative of what happened, which is that there was a coup attempt led by Hamza, or at least an implicit coup attempt led by Hamza. Uh, Jen, the general sense among observers is that that claim isn't very plausible, right? That it does not seem likely that Hamza really was involved in any kind of coup attempt.
3: It's not necessarily that it's not likely. I mean, that's potentially part of it, but it's also they just have provided no evidence whatsoever. Like, they just say that they have some evidence that he was talking to some other people in this, you know, alleged kind of conspiracy. They're like, oh, we have, you know, phone recordings and phone call information, you know, between him and some other people. Um, And then there's this other, like, thing that did actually happen, which is that a friend of his in Israel, who is a good friend, basically... Heard from Hamza over the weekend, according to this guy, to the Israeli guy. He said, Look, you know, Hamza essentially contacted me and said, There's some weird stuff going on. I'm really worried about, you know, my immediate family, my wife and my kids. So the Israeli says, Hey, I'll just, you know, I'll send a jet. I'll take your wife and kids and get you out of the country, you know, get them out of the country to keep them safe for now. Now, Jordanian media and, you know, the regime is kind of pushing the, the idea that this guy is former. You know, Mossad or current Mossad, uh, so this Israeli security service, basically saying that this is an Israeli spy, meaning this is the Israeli government secretly trying to like, you know, meddle here. They're trying to evacuate. You know, they they were in on it, right? So that's why they're sending a jet. Like, who would do that? The guy maintains, "Look, I'm I'm not Mossad. I'm I'm just a friend. Um, and I was worried about my friend, but I have no knowledge or involvement in anything but alleged. But you say he's just on. a friend."
1: But exactly. you say he's just a
3: friend. Oh, baby, oh, baby you. you. <laughs> You're not
1: Mossad. Amazing. But you say he's just a friend. But you say he's just a friend. All right. Sorry, Amazing. Jen. I just, that was just. Beautiful vocal <laughs> styling to Zach
3: Beacham, ladies and gentlemen.
1: It's me. I, I'm the Bismarckie of this show.
3: Oh, incredible. Um, But yeah, so like, so it's like, it's not like there's not nothing, right? It's, but it's all kind of circumstantial. Um, And again, you know, like. Hamza's version is like, yeah, I was worried about my family (laughs) because they literally put me under house arrest. So I kind of was justified. And, you know, and then again, he, you know, they released that audio or or it is released. I don't know who did it, but, you know, that pretty much backs him up with the general being like, do not tweet, like literally don't tweet. Like they're shouting about social media. So it's not really subtle, but at the same time, like you could also see the government's side somewhat being backed up by that in the sense that you know, they didn't actually say coup. It was kind of implied what they actually were saying. Like, the language, it, it was that it was like a foreign back scheme to promote sedition right. with the goal of destabilizing Jordan's security. So you could kind of see how that would maybe fit in. Like, it could kind of be both, right? That maybe there wasn't this vast conspiracy and maybe it wasn't foreign back. But, you know, if you're the king and you see, you know, your half-brother who is a little bit of a rabble rouser tweeting stuff and maybe, you know, they were going to make some other statement or maybe he was going to make some trip or something. You know, we don't know. But you could see that as, like, if you're the king, see that as being, you know, Hansa promoting sedition. So it's not to say that it's, like, completely out of the realm of possibility. I, I think it's a little bit fuzzier it is basically... You know, and again, the regime hasn't provided any sort of hard evidence, but we do have actual audio recordings that seem to back up Hamza's view.
2: Yeah, just to to, to make a point on that, like, if this were a coup attempt of some sort, you'd probably see the military, so the security services— sort of backing Hamza in some way. Like, you don't make a move unless you've got some sort of support. We don't see any evidence that Hamza made that kind of move or had that kind of support. So that sort of actually helps Hamza's claim, in a sense. Also, the the recording that the Jen mentioned, like... Even though it is it is an interesting audio and, you know, there's there's tons of fighting, like, none of it was the general being like, we know what you are up to. Like, here's Yeah, what we exactly. Right? Like, he doesn't mention – Neither
3: of them referenced that at all.
2: Exactly. It's just about, like, dude, just stop tweeting, please, and just
1: stay in
3: the house. <laughs> like, like, hashtag never tweet. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know,
1: I, I understand. Sometimes I wish that the army came to the door to stop me from tweeting, but like,
3: – <laughs> I can have that arranged.
1: Uh, <laughs> Jesus.
3: Like, yeah, Alex, like, you're totally right that you would expect to see, like, the military – you know, or at least some faction of it, support Hamza having support of them rather than like, the general literally being in his house going, yeah, stop talking, buddy. But the foreign backed part is also like weird, right? Because it, take the Israeli part out of it, you know, as I already discussed that, there's also like the other foreign kind of mysterious foreign backer here is potentially Saudi Arabia. Uh, and there are kind of allegations in Jordanian media of all these kind of like weird, quasi-ties that, like, they try to make look really sinister between some of, you know, Hamza's associates and the Saudis, even though, like, some of these associates literally have those connections because they used to work in the government and had to do business on behalf of the government with Saudi Arabia. So, like, they try to make it look kind of nefarious where it's like, well, yeah, of course I have ties with them. I I literally did that for you, the government. But, But the thing that kind of pushes back on that, you know, the idea that, that the Saudis were behind it is the fact that, like, the Saudis immediately came out and were like, Whoa, no, nope, not at all. We absolutely support Abdullah. And then they even sent the, the Saudi foreign minister to Jordan on Tuesday in support of Abdullah. So they like dispatched the foreign minister, like, immediately. They were like, No, please go right there and make it clear. We had nothing to do with this. So it, it seems like, you know, if there were some kind of foreign backed plot, You wouldn't see activity like that. It's just my read of it.
1: So these international dimensions are really important, right? They speak to the pivotal role that Jordan plays in a lot of the Middle East's conflicts. And after the break that we're about to take, we're going to talk about that role and understand why it really matters that Jordan's regime is looking a little bit shakier than it did a few weeks ago.
0: (music) You can find it on the PropG pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome back, worldly listeners. We have been talking about the drama in Jordan's royal family uh, and the way in which accusations of international meddling have played into the narrative surrounding what's going on. Part of the reason that these allegations are so potent is that Jordan really is important in the broader Middle Eastern geopolitical world, though we don't talk about it as much as some of the other countries, it's in part because, like, the stability and consistency of Jordan's regional strategy and aims is, is generally assumed. So, Jen, what what is that, right? Like, what, what does Jordan do in the broader Middle East?
3: Sure. So <laughs> – Just to make it clear, so first of all, uh, background here, the official name of Jordan is the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. The Hashemites are the the royal family, the house of Hashem. So there's a kind of a running joke uh, among uh, often critics of the regime uh, and of Jordan. The running joke is essentially they call it the Hashemite kingdom of boredom Uh, because like things are boring, relatively speaking. It's like, ah, we're just like boring and stable. And even I in like recent weeks, because I just like walk around my house thinking about the Middle East, because of course I do.
1: Like, that sounds right.
3: I honestly was thinking several times in recent weeks, you know, what's funny. We never hear about Jordan in the news, like anything good or bad. Like you just never see Jordan in the headlines at all. Like you see headlines about Oman more than you hear about Jordan, but Jordan. Sick
1: like, Middle East burn there.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's just, it goes over, goes over what a really cut. well in Muscat. Yep. Nice. Well done. But like Jordan likes it that way, right? Like that's. Something, you know, that's one of the reasons why they probably imposed that gag order, because they're like, oh, people are talking about us again. That's not great. And so one of the reasons that Jordan is, like, pivotal in the Middle East is partially just because of its location, right? It's literally to the east of Israel and and the Palestinian territories. Um, Trans-Jordan was the previous, kind of, before Jordan became the independent country, the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. There was Trans-Jordan. Jordan at one point, you know, annexed the West Bank. The West Bank is called that because it is the West Bank of the Jordan River, right? It also borders like Iraq and Syria and Saudi Arabia. Like, it's really literally central. By function of that geography, it is literally in the middle of a lot of stuff that has gone on in the Middle East. So just to give you an example, uh, between one-fourth and one-half of Jordan's entire population are Palestinian. And that is because... Of you know the kind of mass exodus uh, when the state of Israel was created, and also Jordan's you know at one point annexation of the West Bank and giving citizenship to Palestinians there. But there are you know literally millions of Palestinian you know refugees and their descendants from you know the kind of era of the creation of Israel and the wars after and the decades after. So there's that. There's also I think roughly ten percent at latest figure of Jordan's population are Syrian refugees from the Syrian civil war. There also is a pretty heavy population of Iraqi refugees from the Gulf War, from the Iran-Iraq War, from the Iraq War. So Jordan has literally absorbed a lot of refugees from a lot of other countries, and there's a huge amount of tension. I mean, Jordan's first king was assassinated by a Palestinian who was angry over, you know, his basically opposing Palestinian nationalism, right? So Jordan is literally at the center of all of these kind of conflicts. So even just like looking at a map, you can understand why Jordan is at the center of everything. And that's also why it's really important to the United States and, you know, and we'll talk about to Israel as well.
1: Right. So for example, uh, Jordan recently concluded an agreement with the United States that would allow American troops to enter without a visa, uh, which is, And and to move around and uh, armed. which Yeah, and carry weapons. Yeah, (laughs) right, which speaks to uh, not just like the closeness of the United States and Jordan. The Biden administration has been somewhat quiet about what appears to be this repression by the monarch, but also because the U.S. wants to have uh, a freedom of movement. In the Middle East. And so, getting an ability to put its troops in a strategically important location, thanks to the Jordanian government's compliance and friendliness to the United States, means that the US is uh, likely to back even the repressive regime currently in power uh, for quite some time, right? It just wants that military placement in the event of another kind of Middle Eastern conflict. Uh, Another important point is that Jordan plays a significant role in the administration of. The Temple Mount in East Jerusalem, the holy site for both Jews and Muslims, where the Dome of the Rock and the Western Wall is. It, it is a very complicated religious situation, and, and, and getting into the details would be on the scope of the show. But it's important to note that the the Jordanian backing helps preserve what's called the status quo there, where there's a, a sort of set of rules about who prays where under what circumstances, and. If there were to be serious upset in the Jordanian regime, then you could imagine the uh, administration of the Temple Mount area changing, which is it's one of those areas that has played a significant igniting role in Israeli-Palestinian conflicts in the past, given how important it is religiously. So any change to the status quo there uh, would be quite threatening and could lead to chaos.
3: Yeah, I just want to pop in really quickly and just The fact that you just said the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is in itself really interesting because for decades, we didn't call it that. It was the Arab-Israeli conflict, primarily because Jordan was the one that was doing all the negotiating on behalf of the Palestinians. Palestinians weren't acting as their own kind of sovereign entity, not that they have technically sovereignty now, depending on who you ask. But we only in recent decades have started calling it the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because the Palestinians are now essentially acting as their own, although fractured, you know, leadership rather than the Jordanians. So, like, even that alone, like, it used to be just Jordan doing this kind of on behalf of everyone with Israel. And, then, of course, Jordan signed a peace treaty with Israel in 94.
2: I want to talk about the U.S. element for a moment here because— Talk about it. Uh, one, it's what I cover. But, but uh, like, <laughs> two, because I it's not an American story, but it but it matters here. So, broadly speaking, Jordan is, is a player, not only in all the things you just mentioned— but in, like, making sure our ties with Saudi are good, in intelligence sharing, on, on terrorist issues, on just, you know, regional developments, it's, it's helpful right now with, with Syria, especially northeast Syria. Uh, a lot of, like, American designs in the Middle East, including sending troops, uh, are at least aided by Jordan. So it was not surprising, but at the same time it was, to see how quickly the Biden administration came out and was like, we support King Abdullah. He is our guy. Like, stay, Biden literally even said, stay strong. Now, from what we talked about in the first part of this uh, episode, (laughs) the coup part doesn't seem that likely. It's possible, but it doesn't seem that likely. If anything, it seems like Abdullah did this to stifle dissent from his brother and just growing dissent in the country because of Abdullah and the government's mismanagement of the coronavirus, the economy, refugees from Syria, etc. To the point that, again, like there's a huge crackdown. And so... You know, gi- giving some some credibility to Hamza's side here that this is all about, you know, a growing antagonism towards Abdullah and Abdullah trying to, to, to subvert it. So to watch the Biden administration, which constantly says, like, we care about democracy and human rights and, and stopping corruption, here they are almost immediately coming out and saying, Abdullah's our guy, stay strong, you know, keep fighting this. And I asked the White House, like, so what evidence is there that there was a coup plot? And I was told to look at the readout of the Biden-Abdullah call, which, of course, basically said the same things I just said. And then I called the State Department. I said, what do we have on uh, Intel or anything like that about the coup? And they said, let read the readout. That's all we got. So, like, no one is in the U.S. is willing to say, like, yeah, Abdullah's side here is right. And I think we also need to note that the CIA director, Bill Burns, used to be the ambassador to Jordan at an early time in Abdullah's uh, reign. And there are tons of people in the White House who, you know, have, have great relations with, with the Jordanian government, including um, sort of the NSC lead, um, Brett McGurk. So it, it is unsurprising in one end to see the U.S., you know, fall behind its its staunch partner in the region, right, without whom, like, a lot of interest wouldn't be obtained. Like, that's totally understandable. At the same time, it goes completely against seemingly like everything the Biden administration is trying to stand for in foreign policy, you know, this democracy, human rights push. So it's just an odd position to be in, but usually interests, you know, are reign supreme in these kinds of things. And that's why it looks like Abdullah is the guy we're gonna, the U.S. is going to stand behind no matter what.
3: I think it's also just worth noting that, you know, we've talked before on the show a lot about, you know, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia and that close relationship and how, you know, Biden is trying to kind of maybe... Put some distance between the U.S. and and at least the the Saudi Crown Prince, in large part for human rights reasons. But compare that to Jordan. Everything Alex just said is absolutely right. But also, Jordan is literally under U.S. law an ally. It is they are designated they since 1996 as a major non-NATO ally. So that doesn't mean that there's like any security commitment. That doesn't mean that if they go to war, we have to join them. Anything like that. What it does do is it gives them a number of benefits related to economic privileges, military aid. We give literally hundreds of billions of dollars in foreign military sales, aid, training to the Jordanian government, security services, mil- and military. So, like, the defense ties are literally in U.S. law and are really, really, really close in a way that Saudi is not one of those allies. So just that kind of comparison, so when you're talking about, like, the willingness... That's important, yeah. yeah the willingness of the Biden administration to stand up and be like, nope, we totally want this place to say super secure. You know, in some ways, not that this is comparable to the Arab Spring at all, but in some ways it reminds me of the initial kind of days of the Arab Spring in Egypt when the Obama administration essentially kind of backed up, you know, very undemocratic actions by the Egyptian regime and military. So, you know, you can see this, this very clear trade off that is being made between security and essentially keeping Jordan the Hashemite kingdom of boredom. And, you know, standing up for things like free speech and uh, democratic reforms and anti-corruption.
1: Yeah, I I think the Arab Spring analogy, Jen, is a good one. I I don't think the Jordanian regime is close to failing or anything like that. This (laughs) This isn't comparable.
3: Nothing like that. It's not even comparable to the actual instability and uprising they faced. Jordan did have its own Arab Spring. So this isn't even comparable to that. Right.
1: It's just, it's worth thinking about the consequences of what would happen in, a, in the event of there being serious instability in Jordan to understand why it is that the U.S. has has taken such pains to defend a government that on pure moral grounds I think would not be particularly defensible, right? So you have, let's say – You know, there's some internal, more internal conflict among the monarchy, and there starts to be a lack of political control. It's unclear who's in charge, et cetera. Well, you have these divisions among the population, right? You have all of these different refugees of different kinds who are attracted to different political movements. You have the East Bank Jordanians, which is the broad term for the people in Jordan who lived east of the Jordan River. So on the East Bank, you have East Bankers who have been close to the monarchy, but aren't. Always like fully on board with monarchical views, but get privileges from the monarchy, and uh, would be threatened by its collapse. And so you'd have a recipe for internal conflict between these different groups. Uh, yeah, there's not the, to
3: mention the Muslim Brotherhood, which right. itself is divided into at least two fighting factions in Jordan.
1: Right. You so extremists could move in. You have the potential for an Islamist government to set up shop in Jordan, which is obviously what happened in Egypt for a little bit after the the revolution during the Arab Spring, and then you imma- you can imagine what an Islamist government there might do in terms of its regional politics, in terms of how it messes with the peace treaty with Israel or the status quo on the Temple Mount, right? The, the potential for bad things is very, very high. So the, you can spin out all of these different scenarios, right, as to what would happen were there to be a serious legitimacy crisis. And that's to say nothing of the amount of refugees that it would generate on its own, right? You already have all of these refugees in Jordan. If there's some kind of civil conflict, more people would want to move out. And like, where do they go, these people who have been refugees for a really long time that are living in Jordan now? The potential for disasters is fairly high. And so the U.S. government and other international actors put a pretty high premium on keeping things boring in Jordan—
3: that's right. I mean, those are obviously the calculations that are going on in Washington, in you know, in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, etc. Um, at the same time, though, I think there's a very big difference between, you know, a failed state of Jordan producing an outflow of you know refugees. That's a really extreme, like far end. Right. Uh, there's a lot of room to work with in between there and just backing repressive government, right? Like it's not like you know, Hamza that we know of is, you know, calling for an Islamist government to rise up and take take control. He's not calling on the <laughs> right. Muslim Brotherhood to, like, seize control of the palace. Pretty sure, trust me, that would not work out well for him either. Um, <laughs> guarantee the monarchy is not going to fare well, no matter who you are, should that happen. But, like, there's room for reform, right? Like, there are reforms that could be made. There were lots of promises of reforms during the Arab Spring. You know, it is— Technically, a constitutional monarchy. They do have a parliament. Now, you know, the king still controls pretty much all of the power, of course, because that's how it tends to work. Parliament's weak, it's drawn from really heavily gerrymandered districts. The prime minister and the cabinet are all royal appointees, they're not, you know, elected. So, you know, corruption is still a really big deal, as we've talked about. So, like, there are things that could be done to address like the very real concerns that Hamza and plenty of others have raised that the Biden administration i would argue could encourage and now you know to be fair maybe they are behind the scenes i don't know i'm not sure that encouraging democratic reform in jordan is particularly high on their list of of to do no <laughs> uh, you know items considering literally everything else they have to deal with but you know that is something that that they could be doing if they actually want to put their money where their mouth is and care about democracy and human rights. That That's just where I stand. It, it, it doesn't have to, you know, it doesn't have to be the, like, all the way extreme, we have a failed state in Jordan. Like, there are things that could be done.
2: But I think, we you know, we, we're talking a bit extreme here, and I, and I guess I'll reiterate this point. Like, with Abdullah clearly acting more authoritarian, more repressive, the stability that Jordan prides itself on is no longer as staple, right? It is, right. as there are tons of people coming out against the way the government's running things, they've been passing laws that make it, like, criticism of the king illegal. And they are jailing people who criticize the king. And they are jailing a bunch of folks who are protesting the way the government's running stuff. Like, sure, it is not a failed state. It's probably not going to fail anytime soon. But the whole argument from Biden, and and frankly, just even some political science literature, is such that, you know, these kinds of uh, you know, governments seem stable for a bit, but they're sort of, you, you dig underneath and they're, they're rotting and they're weak. And, and Hamza, like, if Abdullah is willing to basically upend Jordan's, you know, fairly well-earned reputation of a stable nation, just because Hamza tweets once in a while and is seen with a couple (laughs) tribal leaders, like, that doesn't feel too healthy. Who among us
3: hasn't tweeted some stuff that we maybe caused some instability? I don't know. Sure. But like, you know,
2: again, I don't want to discount the possibility that Hamza was up to something. Like, that is definitely possible. But it just seems unlikely based on all the things we've talked about. And so... Like, is this exactly the road the U.S. wants to walk down or other nations? And is this the, the road that Abdullah wants to continue on? Like, Abdullah's also facing a choice himself, right? Like, was this sort of a one-off move to set a red line to dissidents and Hamza being like, hey, you got to chill here and, like, don't do this again and we'll be fine? Or is this sort of his new M.O.? Is this any he feels that there's some sort of threat to him or some major criticism of his of his rule, is he going to crack down in this major way um, and if that part is the case, then we're seeing, a like, the authoritarianization of Jordan. We're seeing a war situation. And is that really, like, the partner we want to back as the United States and that other nations want to back? I'm not sure. But that's, like, as silly as this sort of royal brotherly fight is, this family feud, the consequences are pretty big. And and right now it seems like the next moves, like, where all this goes is dependent upon the, you know, the one man who who's wearing the heavy crown.
3: Two last things. Just one, in that audio of, you know, the general speaking to Hamza, he literally says verbatim, you crossed red lines. (laughs) So to that point, that does seem to be at least part of what's going on. And and the other thing I just want to add, when we say the, you know, the authoritarianization of Jordan, I want to make it clear, we're not implying that there was ever a democracy in Jordan, right? It's essentially what uh, some scholars, you know, call a soft dictatorship, right? Like, there are some kind of elements of democratic mechanisms that exist at the kind of bare minimum, but they kind of still ensure that, that the ruler, that the king remains the most powerful guy in the country. So, yeah, you know, I think the concern is, you know, going more in the direction of authoritarianism rather than like the hope, which would be moving more in to the direction of democracy here. So uh, we're
1: going to leave you there. Uh, I want to thank our producer, Sophie Lalonde, for, you know, making this episode an actual episode and putting up with our bad jokes, which is something you as listeners uh, apparently like for some reason. Uh, I want to encourage all of you to rate, subscribe and review Worldly on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, we're there. Uh, And thanks a lot. We'll talk to you next week.
3: Bye.
0: What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prof G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, of Prop G pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.